This morning we make a a bit of a shift in the story here in our uh, journey through the Gospel according to Mark. Uh, Jesus is making a shift in uh, how he's dealing with uh, teaching his disciples and um, what he's been doing up to this point. Uh, So this morning we're going to look at just two verses um, from the opening of Mark chapter 13. Um, And I wrestled with why only two. But I hope by the end of this you will see uh, the significance of these two verses. Reading there, uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he, again Jesus... Uh, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Last week, uh, as we looked at uh, the the story preceding this, I I used the example of, uh, in the story of the widow's offering, we looked at the difference between uh, a penny, or what has been described there in in that account as um, the smallest of all uh, coins or amount of coins. It was actually two copper coins that she had. Uh, that made up a single penny, the the smallest amount that you could actually possess in coin or money. Uh, That versus a $100 bill, which seems, uh, and certainly by comparison, a great deal more, uh, but challenged your thinking as to why we would think this is more than this, because Jesus drew attention to the penny over the large sum that we would consider in that sense. Uh, This week we're going to look at uh, what catches our attention as it comes out of our story here. When we were uh, in in Africa, especially when we were in uh, in South Africa taking uh, time for a safari there, we we saw these also in in Lesotho, but more so in South Africa. We saw these termite mounds. Uh, I didn't know what they were when I first saw them. It almost looked like uh, a, a rock. Uh, sitting on the ground there, and I, I finally asked somebody, what, what are those out there? You'd see them all along the, the roadways and out in the, the empty fields, the open desert. Um, and it looked much like the, the same, it was the same color as all the dirt and sand and clay around it. Uh, it was a termite mound. Uh, and I learned a little bit about termite mounds. Uh, they're quite impressive, really. But if you would put that in comparison to what you could find still on the continent of Africa, farther north, way farther north, uh, you would find the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Now, the the termite mound, uh, many of them that we saw were, you know, maybe a few feet or so. Uh, Some of the ones that we would see, they they might get up to maybe six feet. Uh, Imagine coming across a termite mound as tall as me. And knowing that there's all kinds of those creepy, crawly things in there, I don't even want to try to open that. But what I also found was that uh, it's hard to open. Uh, You could stomp on it all you want with your foot. It's not going to break. But you take that three-foot or six-foot 
termite mound and you put that next to the Great Pyramid of Egypt, you would not even notice the termite mound anymore. By comparison, this, this three to six foot, and certainly there are termite mounds that can be uh, quite tall, even towering above me, um, compare any one of those to the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is about 480 feet tall and about 750 feet at its base square. When we were at the Ark Encounter, I, I had Karen take a, a photo of me by the ark, and I showed it to some of you, and I said, do you you see me in the picture? You didn't. Even me, as this uh, taller guy standing next to the ark, from a distance of of, a thousand feet or whatever, you couldn't see me. In comparison, I was nothing compared to the ark. In the same way, this termite mound, three to six feet or whatever, compared to 450 feet and 750 feet wide, is insignificant. We look at things based on what we see to try to determine how significant they are. And we marvel at the great pyramids of Egypt. Um, And we probably do that more so to the little termite mound, which maybe creeps us out at times. But I would say, as we... Uh, think about those two things, for me, the termite mound is far more impressive than the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Even at three feet tall, not nearly as big as some of the other ones, you could probably even hit it with a hammer over and over before it would even crack. With a little bit of uh, termite spit and dung and clay and everything else, they make something that is um, unmovable. It's fascinating too because the inside temperature of that termite mound, everything on the interior of that always stays at a constant 31 degrees Celsius. It doesn't matter if it's beating hot outside or if it's the cold night, inside remains the same. There's fresh air that circulates through there. The colony works uh, to, to make this... Um, so intricately that it has all these wonderful properties that just uh, boggles our mind. Now, now maybe the pyramid still looks more impressive to you. It's bigger. It's more mysterious. How do they build those things and these stones that are huge? How do they get them up there? The significance. The termite mound still has, in our world, greater significance because it draws your attention to the majesty and glory and wonder of God. How little termites can spit on mud and make this impenetrable fortress that stays constant. No matter how much rain falls, no matter how much the temperature changes, it remains the same and it's a fortress. And that's what God designed the termites to do. And in that termite mound, God gets all the glory. Pyramid? It's a wonderful work of man. It's amazing a, a feat of engineering and, and labor and everything that goes into that. 
But who gets the glory for it? The one it was built for. Your attention is drawn to the, to the man, to the Pharaoh who died. That's, it's, it's erected to him and to his family. And some people suffered and died because he wanted his family and his pets and his slaves buried with him. And so the one buried in it gets the glory for that. It's there to bring glory to man, much in the same way that the Tower of Babel did, probably around that same time or shortly after. So in our text here, in these two short verses, um, who's drawing attention to what? Listen to uh, verse 1 again. It says, And he came out of the temple, and one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And does it amaze you that after all the time that they've spent in the temple with Jesus and what they've just encountered in the story before this, and now as they're coming out, what caught the attention of the disciples was Good grief, would you look at all these stones? Would you look at the massive uh, beauty of this temple? And they draw Jesus' attention to the structure there. The disciples are marveling. uh, They're marveling at Herod's temple. It's still actually in construction. It isn't finished yet. It had been uh, started to be rebuilt and and modified um, about roughly um, 45 years or so prior to this. This is, this is Herod's temple. This is Herod's doing. Uh, but when they come out, they're not just coming out of a temple proper, but they're coming out of the, the entire uh, temple mount. If you would uh, look at the, the front of your bulletin, uh, you'd get a little bit of an idea of, of what's uh, what they're marveling at. And if you walked out and you're looking back at all this, and especially as you see some of these foundational stones around the, the perimeter of this whole place, and then to see it uh, with um, whitewash and, and with uh, overlaid with gold and all of that, and just a massive... Some of these stones at the base of this are 400 tons. And the disciples are impressed by that. And they draw Jesus' attention to Herod's temple. By comparison, Herod's temple is more than twice the size of the temple that Solomon built in his day. The first permanent structure that God had them build because before that it was just the tabernacles. Uh, they were impressed, the disciples, by its size, by its beauty, how, how permanent and unmovable it seemed. What did, what did Jesus draw their attention to? As the disciples come out with Jesus, and they look around and they see all that surrounds them there, they draw attention To that, what did Jesus draw their attention to? It's not what you think. See, we we in our in our Western way of thinking, because of uh, the way our Bibles are laid out, we see that we just started a new chapter and we've kind of left the old chapter twelve behind us. 
uh, it wasn't written with this big, bold number 13 in the text there when it was written down. It was this continuing story, and it's placed in such a way that it's meant to show you the flow and the significance of what's being explained to us. Jesus, just prior to this, drew attention to the widow's penny. Very insignificant. Certainly, as we looked at, uh, in comparison to all the heaps of money that just kept being put into the treasury there. And this widow puts in her last bit of money. That's what Jesus drew the disciples' attention to. And right after that, as they walk out of that setting, they say, my, look at all these wonderful things here. How impressive they are. What a contrast in what's being presented as significant. The disciples, uh, impressed by the building and the structure and the size and the beauty, and Jesus drawing their attention to the woman who gave everything she had in a response to God. The disciples seem more amazed by Herod's temple, uh, a temple that became uh, sort of his possession when he came in and conquered Jerusalem, and then by the Roman Senate was given the title of King of the Jews. They come out and they're impressed by Herod's temple. It meant that Jerusalem had been conquered again. And Herod now changes the temple. For whose glory? What else about the temple does Jesus draw our attention to? He, he draws our attention to the widow in the temple who gives everything to God. Imagine that, inside the temple, and you give your all. Jesus' journey in the temple uh, began uh, just at the beginning of chapter 11. Um, At the the opening um, part of chapter 11 there, at verse 11, Uh, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, it says uh, in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. He looked around at everything, and as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the beginning of Jesus' time in the temple area, and it's very uh, unassuming, very quiet, hardly even announced. Uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, And he went to the temple and he looks around and then he begins to interact with people in the temple. And we've seen seen these things. The first thing Jesus does when he comes to the temple that we see him doing is violently overthrowing the tables of the money changers. When Jesus comes into the temple after he's uh, analyzed everything that's going on there, the first thing he does is clear out Uh, what seems to be the only thing happening in the temple. Money changers. 
It was a normal function of the temple. But it seems to be the only thing that's happening there anymore. Jesus said, you've turned it into a den of robbers, even taking advantage of people. It's meant to be a house of prayer. Apparently, Jesus found no prayer there in the temple. When you, when you keep uh, looking through where we've been in uh, Mark's Gospel account here, you begin to see how um, all these different ideas come out uh, in his experience at the temple. His authority is challenged. Jesus, who is uh, God in the flesh among them, his authority is being challenged here in the temple. They say as, as he turns over the money table uh, there in the temple, who gives you that authority to do that? What gives you any right to come in and upset what we're doing here? You go on from there in chapter 12 and he gives them this parable of the tenants and, and, and reminds them that uh, God has a plan here and he's been uh, allowing people to tend what he's given them. But all along the way, they seem to mistreat his servants. They keep beating and sometimes killing the, the prophets who came before. And the story says, well, I'll, the, 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 the owner would send his son. Certainly, they'll treat him well. As we know, that's not happening either. The one who is standing there as the, the rightful recipient of the father's uh, possession is also going to be mistreated, mistreated and killed. They question him about money for the temple, money that goes to Caesar, money for uh, the, the follower, the, the Jew in that day. What do you make of this money stuff? And he says, well... If it was Caesar's money that he gave to you, give it back. But make sure you give to God the things that are God's. And in the temple, in this area here where Jesus is teaching them, where, where the things of God should be evident to them, it doesn't seem as, anybody, as if anybody is giving God his due. They're more concerned about making sure Caesar gets what's his but not God. The Sadducees come and talk to him about uh, life and everlasting life. And, and what do you make of this woman who had all these different brothers? And Jesus rebuked them because they didn't understand about life. He says, you're, you're completely wrong on what you're talking about here because you don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God, that would also be significant for us to know in relationship to the temple. The Word of God and the power of God are always present in the temple. The Ten Commandments are there in the Ark of the Covenant. And when, when God is there in His fullness, the glory and the power of God fills the temple. And they're wondering about trying to trick Jesus into what happens in an afterlife that they don't even believe in. And with those commandments, somebody says, well, of those commandments of this Word of God, 
Which of them is the most important? And Jesus says, you should love your God, as we were talking about, wholly, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then live that out in the way that you treat one another as well. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's this overarching principle that's supposed to move every follower of God to love Him wholeheartedly and serve Him and serve one another with everything. And that's not happening here in the temple either. At that point, their questions stop. And Jesus says, so, and we had the big chair up here, Whose seat does this belong to? How is it possible that David, the descendant, the natural uh, long line down the line descendant of David, how is he superior to the one that came so far before him? And Jesus, the rightful descendant of Jesus, the one who would sit on the throne and rule and reign there, they've missed it. Meanwhile, he rebukes them and says, He would be the one that sits on David's throne. In the meantime, you guys sit there and try to take all the best seats and try to draw attention to yourself. All of this still happening around the temple time here. And he finishes this whole temple experience with what we looked at last week in the widow's offering. And of all the things that are being done there, of all the rebukes that he gave for them not understanding what this temple experience should be like for them, he lifts up this unknown widow who gave the least amount that anybody would think is even possible, but gave everything she had for God. After all that, the disciples say, Wow, look at those stones! the only thing they seem to come away with after that whole time. Have the followers of Jesus somehow missed the significance and purpose of the temple? Jesus shocked those that were nearby. The disciples first and then others would hear it as well. He said, you see these great buildings? All of this gets torn down, completely destroyed. For his disciples, that had to have been disheartening disheartening because they've seen that happen in the past. And here this magnificent building is being built up and Jesus said, it's all going away. It isn't going to last. Not one stone upon another. And that came to pass within just 40 years of that time, the temple once again destroyed. But Jesus had already said it's going to be destroyed and it's not going to have anything left to it. How, does, how do the disciples process that? If, if this is all going to be destroyed, then what do we make of the temple? This was their sanctuary This is where they would come and and feel so connected to God. If it's destroyed, then what? 
What's the purpose of the temple if it's just going to keep getting destroyed over and over? To understand um, where we need to be in our understanding of the temple, it's helpful to see where Scripture brings it out and what it says about it. To do that, you go to the first place that you see a temple setting, which is Genesis 1 and 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. God just created everything and then he finished and he rested. Now in the culture of that day, as we looked at when we were going through uh, the early chapters of Genesis uh, here a while back, um, the Eastern culture then, the Near Eastern culture, would have understood that to be the one who is in all authority began to reign in what he had created. It would say uh, later that uh, heaven is my throne room and earth is my footstool. Sounds very much like a temple. And when you begin to see where the temple goes throughout Scripture, you begin to see more of that same imagery brought into the temple uh, echoing back here to Genesis. Then go to the end of the book. This one, not Genesis. The end of the complete book. And you see this. As, as John is now getting to the end of his vision, he said, And I saw no temple in the city. The temple had been mentioned several times already through the book of Revelation, but when it gets to the end, and John is getting a vision of what it's going to be like there when, when all is complete, he said, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. In heaven there is no need for a temple because what the temple represents is there in its absolute fullness as it was in the garden. In between there, there's all kinds of different uh, ways that the temple is being presented because we're between where it was uh, started the way God designed His presence to be with His people and the end when it comes in its final state where it's being ushered in and there is no actual temple because God and Christ are the temple. The temple represents the very presence and the power of God with mankind. But that couldn't last here. It didn't last here. It will be reestablished there. But in between there, we get this picture of what temple life is like. And it stays the same all throughout with different um, visions or different uh, ways of it being described. The next one you see is the tabernacle. And when Moses is finished uh, constructing the tabernacle, that first place uh, that was set up, it says in Exodus 40:34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the temple 
this was right after the setting up of the temple, the glory of the Lord fills it. The presence of God is fully there in the temple, except there has to be an altar there of sacrifice. There has to be a a basin of washing first. There need to be candles of, of incense that would represent our prayers and petitions before our God because the world in which we live in now is still broken in need of redemption and saving. And somebody has to do something, much like in the garden, where the sacrifice was given to cover the sins of Adam and Eve. And since that time, the temple has always had that provision for a sacrifice. And so when you get to the end in the book of Revelation, what's there? The Lord God Almighty and the sacrifice. And now the gap has been bridged from where it started and where it was intended to be all the way through this time of evil and turmoil in our world. And he gets to the end and the temple is back the way it should be. And the Lord God Almighty is there and the sacrifice that made it possible. So how is your understanding of the temple shaped the way you live your Christian life? Are we at all cost, like the story just before this, and spoiler alert, the story that's yet to come at the end of Mark, where we at all costs give ourselves to bring about the glory of God? Or do we fall more like maybe the the Pharisees that come into the temple and in their lack of humility would stand there and say, Lord God, I thank you that I'm not like all these sinners around me. Do we come into the temple to to say, I'm so much better than all of them? Or do we come like the one who wouldn't even enter the temple proper and say, Lord, I'm not even worthy to stand before you and I come humbly and confess my sin. And the glory of God and the purpose of God was revealed in his life and he went home justified and not the one who stood there in his pompous arrogance. Do we make this a place where people can come in and feel comfortable knowing that they need that as much as we've needed it to come into this place and fall before Him, open, empty, and allow Him to bring healing and cleansing and restoration and reveal His glory? Are we just going through the motions, constantly bringing in a sacrifice, hoping that it will do some good, and yet prayer does not motivate the purpose of this place. Is the glory of God through the sacrifice of Jesus who gave everything still the main purpose of this place? 
Or has Jesus left the building? Father, that question just haunts us to think that somehow we may have missed as well, like the disciples did, the purpose and the, the, the function of the temple, what it stands for, what it represents, what it's going to be. And we get so caught up on what we see around us and we forget that temple time, not just a building. Father, one day this building will not exist anymore either. This isn't your temple. We are. We as followers of Jesus Christ, those that have been purchased by the sacrifice, the blood of the Lamb, we are that temple now. We reveal the glory of God and we bring significance to the world around us saying that they can also come in and be washed and redeemed and set free from everything that binds them. It's not a place of ritual, of, of going through the motions. It's a place where life is. It's a place where glory is revealed, where hearts are changed, where people are motivated to give everything that we have. So to see Jesus leaving the temple, and that temple, that, that understanding would never be there again for God's people. A new temple will be revealed. The final temple, the real temple that was always meant to be, is yet to be revealed. So Father, give us eyes here today to see what temple life is really all about and then move us for the glory of your kingdom and for the honor of your name. Amen.